Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Conspiracy Normal, everybody. We are back with an interesting set of shows. And guys, we've got a we got an interesting guest tonight because uh, this gentleman has done a lot of things, and we're going to really be talking about a lot of historical stuff, and this is going to be quite interesting. So we have got on the line uh, Mr. Gary Ravel, who is a Renaissance man of sorts. He's a, a writer of different kinds, songwriter, screenwriter, singer, and uh, what we're most interested in tonight is his role as an investigator, uh, most well known for his investigations into the assassination of Martin Luther King. Uh, as well as uh, other political figures uh, in the 60s, JFK, RFK included, and uh, even John Lennon. Uh, so I want to start by uh, just asking you to, to clarify that you you say that you are an investigator, not a, just a researcher or a, a conspiracy theorist. What what What's the distinction there? Well, actually, I was what's called a special investigator, and and that comes with the uh, I was uh, associated with naval intelligence and, and DIA uh, during the Vietnam War when I was in the Navy. And the work that I did was called special investigations. They, I didn't I wasn't a for hire private detective or anything like that. I just only did specific assignments. And uh, uh, so uh, my, my and, and I've done a report I've, I've filed a the most recently, the last report I filed was just last year, and it's a report on the special investigation of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and then of President JFK. Both of those were mandated by the House Assassinations Committee in 1977 when I was working uh, associated with them. So, uh, and, and what I remind people sometimes when they start talking about conspiracy theories, I tell them I don't have a conspiracy theory. I just I just did an investigation and did a report, and to be to be perfectly honest, 
a report on a special investigation is much more credible and important than a theory. That being said, how did you come to uh, to start that special investigation around James Earl Ray and the assassination of MLK? Well, that, that's a long story in itself. We've got time. <laughs> that's, that's about three hours, but no, I'll make it. I'll, I'm, I'll shorten <laughs> it. Uh, so uh, because of some of the work I did when I was in the Navy during the Vietnam War, um, uh I, I, when I was in Nashville, I began working with Jack Kershaw. Now, I was signed. I was writing songs for Acuff Rose. I don't know if y'all remember. Acuff Rose had a studio on Franklin uh, back then. Real real nice studio. Then They were the number one country music publisher in the world back then. But I'd already been to Hollywood. I'd already made records and published stuff and stuff. So when I got there, uh, I ended up, you know, start working with Acuff Rose and also at the same time working at a service station that was called Music Rochelle, which was owned by the Wilburn Brothers, who were, of course, partners with Loretta Lynn. So uh, th- she had the um, that uh, Surefire Music publishing company. Also, they, they wanted me to sign with them also, but I, I never did. I just stayed with A-Cup Rose. But as I'm working in this service station, uh, uh, Jack Kershaw and his wife would come in there and get gas occasionally. And after a few times and just speaking to him, uh, one day uh, uh, he uh, he stopped and he asked me to come to dinner that night. He said, we want you to bring your wife and your kids and come have dinner with us tonight. And I said, OK. So I went went to dinner at that big former golf clubhouse. You know, and we're in that huge room having dinner. You know, it's, it's, it was really impressive. He had his art around. He had all this stuff, a big fireplace, you know, going uh, it was quite an impressive uh, situation to to meet them in, you know, and uh, that was the beginning. And, and then he, he, you know, he found out I'd done some investigations uh, and did some co- work covertly a few times. And so he had me start uh, helping him occasionally and do some investigations for him. That's how it started. OK. And then what made him want to take on? The representation of, of James Earl Ray, did he have some some doubts about the official story? Well, he had actually already met Ray a couple of times before the 77 thing, and he had already done some preliminary legal work for him even before then. But then once, once the Congress uh, had that mandate to investigate uh, the president, uh, President John F. Kennedy's assassination and Martin Luther King's assassination, he saw it as an opportunity to push for a trial because uh, James Earl Ray had never had a trial. Uh, all he had was a guilty plea hearing. And the day after, as soon as he got to prison, had a good night's sleep. He wrote the judge a letter and he said, I, I don't you know, I'm not pleading guilty. You know, I want a, I want a trial. I want a full jury trial. So he pled guilty. Then he was sentenced. So yeah, there was no yeah. trial. Yeah. And and he didn't and he didn't really even plead guilty. I've done uh, you know, I've done I've worked with some attorneys on doing an analysis of that guilty plea hearing. And he stands up in open open court and says, well, I don't agree with the prosecutor basically saying he's pleading guilty, but he don't agree with the charges. Now, any every judge I've talked to about that situation, they've all told me the same thing. They said, well, he should have stopped the proceeding right then. And said, well, Mr. Ray, you cannot plead guilty and then say you don't agree you're pleading guilty to the charges that are that are against you. 
And am I right in understanding that it, it's not that Kershaw or yourself thought that he was not involved at all, but he was involved in a larger conspiracy that he may not have been aware of? Well, you know, even, even then when here's what, okay, here's what happened. I, w- I was at work one day. We, we had a little office there uh, off of Leland place. Uh, and, uh, I, in our room, we had, we had an office and he had a desk on one side and I had a desk on the other. So I was sitting there one day shortly after all this stuff was starting to develop. And he uh, walked over to my desk and he showed me some documents he had, you know, with James Earl Ray's name on it. Now he had he had uh, been retained by Ray to represent him during the House Assassinations Committee investigation, and he said, "I want you um, to put some of your experience, you know, as as working covertly to work with this case." He said, "I want you to investigate the Martin Luther King assassination." Now, when he did that. I did, you know, I wasn't like all ears. <laughs> I just, mm-hmm. I really didn't, I didn't look to see that as a good thing. <laughs> right. So uh, I said, oh, well, I'll let you know. And uh, the marvelous thing about all of this was I, I really hadn't made up my mind. And I was going to church a lot during that time. Uh, and our church started holding what was a, called a roving revival, rolling revival. We'd have revival service in one church one night, then go to another church the next night, all around the Nashville area, different churches on a different night, you know. So one night I'm at a black church and I'm worshiping. Now, I had met that pastor, uh, but he didn't really know me. And nobody knew that I was considering uh, investigating the King assassination. So I'm sitting after the service. Uh, I'm, he came back to me. I was sitting close to the back. And uh, he said, Gary, he said, God wants me to tell you something. And I said, all right. What's he have to say? <laughs> he said, well, he told me to tell you to quit playing around in the shallow water and get on out there where it's deep. Well, when he said that, I knew what he was talking about. He had no idea. And nobody else would have. Nobody in the world would have known what he was talking about except me. But that's when I just kind of in my head said, okay, God, I understand. I'll do it. <laughs> so the next day I told Jack that I would I would do I would do what he asked me to do. And then the first meeting with the House Select Committee on Assassinations, we had uh, Richard Sprague there. He he was the chief counsel uh, before Blakey. And he was the first one to meet with us and James R. Ray to have the first. Uh, and this is all documented. There's uh, government books published about it and and uh, tapes and all that. But um, d- during that meeting, he he said, you know, he wanted to find, you know, to get to, to find every document related to it and get to the bottom of it. And then after that, he spoke with me privately and well, semi-privately. Some of the other investigators, other attorneys, investigators were there. But he said, I want you to do this covertly and I want you to associate with us, but you won't be working directly for the committee because that way, otherwise, we'll, you know, someone else will be telling you what you can do, can and cannot do. He said, I want you to be able to do whatever you think you need to do. And uh, so that's that's the way he left it. But a week later, he was fired. Mm. So did that that ended your semi-official work for the committee itself and and you just resumed with Kershaw? 
Well, not in my mind. I, I continued to work for Kershaw, and I didn't even Kershaw didn't know most of what I was doing uh, on the covert side. Uh, but uh, in my mind, I had been commissioned to do the work, and to this day, I've never been fired, never been decommissioned, and never been paid. <laughs> still kind of in limbo, huh? It's still you're still technically investigating, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, I'm not actively investigating anything anymore. I mean, I'm sure. 73 years old. <laughs> I think right. you deserve some rest. Yeah. Yeah. So then, I guess technically, the investigation stopped. Well, well, not I. I, I investigated that whole year, uh, you know, and and um, this was seventy seven. Yeah, from from January, I first you know started thinking about doing it in January, and you know made up my mind February. Then in March, on March twenty second is when I met uh, uh, Richard Sprague. But now a, a month before that. I had met James. I t- okay, here's what happened. I told Jack after I said, okay, I'll do it. I said, look, but here's the thing. I've got to meet James Earl Ray. I've got to sit down with him. I got to look him in the eye. I got to shake his hand because I've got to know myself if this guy is a murderer or not. He's the kind of person who would just murder someone in cold blood. And so he arranged for me to do that at Brushy Mountain Prison. And I spent a day with James Earl Ray. We even went to lunch together at the at the lunch cafeteria there in the prison. And the, the warden Warney Stony uh Stony Stony Warden. What you you know, the, the, the warden was there sitting there. I got to know the warden also, Stony something. Stony Lane, I think his name was. Uh but uh once I once I really spent enough time with James you know, I shook his hand. I said, look, just tell me, you know, this is all off the record. You can tell me anything. Uh, I just want to hear from you, you know, what happened from your side. And uh, once I heard his story that day and I left that prison driving back to Nashville, I knew that there was a problem with that case. And I knew I had to find out more about what happened. So what did Ray say that happened that day? Well, that that's a two-hour conversation. Also. <laughs> okay, all right. But but ba- basically, I would you know I can just say that he said that the the man that he was um, uh, Raul, he, there was a man named Raul who became his his monitor. Um, right, right. Mm-hmm. Up in up in it, it happened up in uh, Canada where he met uh, he met um, E. Howard Hunt and he met Lucian Sardi. At the time, Lucian Sardi was running the Canadian mob. He was the mob boss, the godfather of the Canadian side of the Italian mafia. Uh, and uh, James met them at the at the uh, Neptune bar there. In, in, and um, they they told him, you know, he, he said, I want to know. Yeah, he said, I'm, I'm escaped from prison. Of course, they helped him escape, too. That's another story. But uh, but he said, and I want to get out of the country. I want to go to another country and live, you know, and get documents, get government, you know, papers that will allow me to go. And they said, no problem. We can get you that. But we've got a few things we want you to do for us in the meantime. So that's when he became, uh, you know, they would give him money and then they would assign, you know, he ran drugs. He, he became a mafia soldier, basically. And then later on, he met Carlos Marcello and he got, uh, you know, he got the alert to, you know, he got he got brought into as a family member through Carlos Marcello later on. And that's the New Orleans crime family. Known right. As. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. 
For many years, Carlos ran the southern tier of the United States of America. I mean, few people know that, but uh, I have a lot of inside information on why and how I know that. Marcelo comes, I mean, he comes up in the JFK assassination tier. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He yeah, The FBI had taped his phones and all kind of stuff, yeah. In fact, I think that Jack Ruby, I think, had some kind of connection with Marcelo, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, Jack Ruby and and uh, yeah, and, and several people involved in that thing had had direct connection. E- even Oswald, even Oswald, yeah. when he was in New Orleans, he had some some go around connections to Marcelo. Yeah, and and so Ray ends up meeting with Lucien Sarti and and E. Howard Hunt. And this Raul character comes into the mix. Well, Ra- here's the thing about Raul. Raul was was what was called the drop name. Uh, uh, in other words, when he would call the uh, he would call the hotel, the motel, the town and country motel in New Orleans for his next assignment or his next meeting, and he would use the name Raul. Now, and he told me, you know, first meeting, he said, "Well, there was a lot of Rauls." I said, "Well, who is Raul?" When he mentioned it, he said, "Well, there was several of them who would, you know, who I would meet." He said, "But the principal one," and he showed me that that picture in that book of uh, those three guys, uh, you know, in Dallas, the three tramps, and then the one that looks the most like E. Howard Hunt. Well, I'll just he said, "I'll just point to this and tell you that." That role looked like the the principal role looked like this, and this is the one I met with the uh, with the Italian mob boss in in Canada, and that was E. Howard Hunt. Yeah, E. Howard Hunt was generally believed to be one of the three tramps. I think E. Howard Hunt pretty much confirmed that, essentially, in my in my opinion. Well, he did he did admit that he yeah. was involved in that, you know, to his son when he was dying. Right. Yeah. And I'll tell, I tell, tell you someone else who uh, who uh, told me and told some other people, Jerry Patrick Hemming, uh, when they would ask him about the JFK thing, he said, well, why don't they ask me about the, the King thing? <laughs> he said, we we did that, too. <laughs> so, so the same group that killed Kennedy killed Martin Luther King. So, so he go, I, I know that he goes to Montreal. He, he's meeting with this role character. Um, and then what happens according to James Earl Ray in Memphis? Well, I can, I'll just tell you what I found. What what I found is that after that, he began to run drugs across the Canadian border for this, for these guys. Mm -hmm. Okay. Eventually he ends up back down South Birmingham and then in Atlanta and and, uh, places. And he ends up going across the Mexican border, uh, doing the same thing uh he ends up over in tijuana eventually and um he has a bit of a falling out because uh, some of them was was uh interested in what was called snuff films i don't know you ever heard of a snuff film oh yeah unfortunately yeah. well some of the the people he was involved in was uh was in that trade and he had a falling out with them he, he wasn't the kind of guy that wanted to do that he w- he wouldn't go that far. So so they end up sending him to Los Angeles. While he was in Los Angeles, he went back to New Orleans a couple of times. One time was to meet Carlos Marcel and become a made mob guy. And then he goes back. And then it was uh, shortly after that, they sent him to Atlanta. 
they had him, uh, of course, they bought the gun. They sent him Birmingham, to Birmingham to buy the gun. Now, the gun was, was like, you buy this gun because we're going to sell it to, to Mexican and Central American folks, you know, because they want guns. So we, Guns for dope. Show, yeah. Well, you're going to show them this gun, you know, 30 or 6, that's not a combat weapon, so I don't know why he fell for that. But they had told him, you're going to show them this gun. They, they're going to buy thousands of them from us. <laughs> you know, yeah, 30 all sixes to fight a war, right? But see, that's, see, okay, look, uh, James Earl Ray was not a bright guy, okay? So so he fell for that stuff. And and then, so then he ends up buying the gun. He ends up in Memphis. And the day he was in Memphis, he met at another. There's two Jim's Bar and Grill. There's two Jim's Bars, okay? There's one closer downtown. He met with all the guys at that first Jim's Bar with uh, E. Howard Hunt and the whole, the whole bunch of them. The whole bunch. There was four or five of them involved. And uh, then they said, you're going to go to this other Jim's Bar and Grill and rent a room. So that's where he got his assignment. The first, you, you notice how, you know, I, I, I'm not giving any methods or sources away by telling you this because yes. it's generally well known. But, but uh, when you're dealing with the mafia and with the with intelligence, a lot of times they have more than one plan. They have the more than one thing happening to throw people off. And the need to know compartmentalization kind of thing going on. Right. So, and so so the two gyms bars is a perfect fit for that kind of thing. See, interesting. So what so what happens next? He has the weapon now. He's meeting with them. Yeah, he went. So he went to to Brewer's uh, rooming house like they told him. The other gyms bar and grill was right there. Uh, he rented the room. Um, he uh, he put all of his stuff in the room. And then they began to send him out to do things. They sent him out to buy some binoculars. Uh, they sent him here and there. And, and uh, you know, and, he's get, and so he, he told me, he said, you know, he said, I really got worried about this whole setup because it started, started not making too much sense to me. And he said uh, the last time they sent him out, they sent him out to fill up the car with gas. So it would be full of gas when they left there. They wanted to make sure. It was full of gas, you know, when they left. Uh, so he went to the service station to get gas. And he said while he was there, y'all was also, you know, get going to get a tire fixed because the, the spare tire wasn't in the best of shape. Uh, get it, you know, blow it up and sit, make sure it was going to be fine. So while he's while he's there, there's a payphone nearby. And he said, you know, he said, he said, I was just really getting nervous about the whole thing. So I went to the payphone and I called Carlos. He called the town and country motel. Now, eventually I found I found the uh, the doc, the files, the FBI files that show that he made that call from that phone booth to the because they were monitoring all the phone calls coming in there, you know. So so I was able to prove to myself that he did make that call. And he told Carlos, he said, look, this don't this don't make any sense. You know, this is 30 out six. They're telling you these gun buyers are going to buy thousands of them, you know. And he said, it's just not starting. To, it's starting to make me uncomfortable. Carlos cursed him out. And I won't use the, the words that he used. But he said, you get your, you know what, ass back over to that rooming house. Get up there and get in that room and do it now. Well, this was a little after, this was a couple of minutes after six. 
So he's driving back over there, and by the time he gets to the corner where he would turn right and right again to drive in front of the rooming house, there's a policeman on the corner motioning him away, telling him to turn the other direction. So he turns the other direction, and he heads out. He heads on out to uh, the state line, and while he's driving, it comes over the radio that Martin Luther King had been shot. And he told me, he said, well, that's, he said, that's when I knew what it was about. He said, he said he knew that they were setting him up to take mm-hmm. the fall. Yeah, because this rooming house is across the street from the Lorraine Hotel. Right. Yeah. Wow. So in your investigation, did you, uh, you get any kind of idea of who might have been behind it and, and for what reasons of anything that you can share, of course? What I, what I found and what I believe is... Uh, and I, I had uh, I had a lot of files. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of William Sullivan mm-hmm. who had ran who had ran the uh, d- uh, domestic uh, investigation office. He was director of domestic investigations at the FBI. COINTELPRO, right? He was. He ran that. Yeah, and and he was also uh, in uh, in charge of what was called the Destroy King Squad. And that was the uh, several FBI agents in Atlanta whose job it was to try to destroy Martin Luther King. Uh, now he, uh, when I started investigating this this case, I'd say within about within about three months. To at the same time, I was still singing and playing in clubs, you know, occasionally. So one night I was playing in a in that club at the Quality Inn out near. It wasn't too far from the airport. Well, not too close, either, but it was in that general, you know, direction. Um, and uh, when I took a break, the uh, there was a there was a um, a lady at the bar, and uh, she said, "Well, first off, she said there's going to be someone here." And I forget now. She she had on a, a yellow. It's going to have a yellow hat or something. She gave me a specific identification of this person that was coming, and and, and she said, and she's going to uh, uh, talk to you and wants you to to meet someone. And and I said, you know, I said okay. So then the, the next break, break, sure enough, there was this lady there that fitted that that description. So I went up to her. I said, "Okay, what's up?" She said, "Oh, she said, go to go to this room." She gave me the key to the room and it had the number on it. She said, "Somebody wants to meet you." So, uh, so I went to the room and went in, and and uh, it turned out that it was William Sullivan, but he had a beard. See, he used disguises, and he he knew, you know, he knew how to do all that. Of course, of course, I, I did too. That's some some of the things I did also. But he was sitting in the dark area of the room with a hat on a beard on and uh and i i think that he, he i think the um if i remember correctly he didn't even have a suit and tie on at that point but um uh we got to talking and uh ultimately he gave me documents he gave me files that he had taken that he had kept when he left the FBI. Now, do you know about how he how he, how he left the FBI? He had no. a falling out with Hoover, right? 
Well, yeah, he he told me. He said I went. He said he said I couldn't do this anymore. He said after King was killed and the way that the things were going, he said I went into J. Edgar's office and said, "Look, I can't do this anymore." He said, "I don't mind staying if you want me to run this operation, but uh, it's either me or you. One of us is going to have to go." So he left the office the next day. When he got to work, his his door was locked. So J. Edgar had made the decision it was going to be him. He wasn't even allowed him to get back in his office and get anything. Uh, they they sent him some of his personal belongings, but uh, but anyway, so he he's in New, he goes up to Sugar Hill, New Hampshire. I believe that's the name of the town he was living in. And uh, he told me he said now these these he told me he said now he said you've heard that knowing too much will get you killed, right? And I said yeah. I said I know that I know that from my own personal experience and work that I've done myself for the government. He said, well, he said, what I'm telling you is, but knowing more than enough will give you insurance. He said, so these files I'm giving you, he said, you'll notice that some of them are blacked out. And then the copies of those same files without the blackouts you have. So you can tell by what's blacked out what they're trying to hide. So I was fortunate enough to have files that probably nobody in the world's ever seen besides me and a few people. And most most anybody else who's seen them is dead by now. Uh, so I may be one of the only living people that has seen some of this stuff. But but from that stuff, I learned mm-hmm. more about the case than 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 even meeting meeting Marcelo or or, you know, even the even the meetings that I had. Well, and then he meets an unfortunate and. Um... Some would say suspect fate too, uh, William Sullivan, right? Exactly. Yeah, and he told me he said, "Now don't." He said, "Don't make any of this public." He said, "Don't even talk to Jack Kershaw or the House Assassinations Committee about any of this until I go public." He said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna be interviewed by the House Assassinations Committee, and when I do, I'm gonna lay it on the table, and it's all gonna go public." He said, "Then you can start talking to anybody you want to about what you're doing." Uh, well, a week before he was to testify, he was shot and killed there in his, his, his near his home. And I, I believe it's Sugar Hill, New Hampshire. I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff, I'm, I'm talking off the top of my head. I don't have yeah. any notes, nothing like that. So you live some, this, yeah, some of this stuff may be a little, uh, but anyway, so the week before he was to testify, he, he went for a walk one morning and he was shot and killed by a young man in his early twenties who uh, said that he thought he was a deer. Yeah, it was Sugar Hill, New Hampshire. I'm just looking it up here. Yeah, that's where that's where he So they so, so, so this young man turned out to be like the son of a of a local sheriff and uh-huh. he got fined, he got fined two hundred and fifty dollars for killing William Sullivan, one of the most famous FBI agents in history. <clears throat> because he thought he was a deer. Yeah. That's the, interesting. The one person who would, you know, besides Hoover himself, know the most about COINTELPRO and exactly. and uh, all these assassinations. Exactly. This is November 8th, 1977 is when he's killed. The committee for assassinations is going on at that time. That's right. Yeah. They, and they were his prime. That was his. They were his prime witness. I mean, he was the guy that was going to unload it. Wow! And, wow! And what and what may be what may be also interesting to you? My brother had been killed uh, in uh, in late August, uh, early uh, late August or early September of, of that just of that year too. Just a couple of months before 
before Sullivan was killed. Yeah, I wanted to mention that some tragedy really close to you happened around you during this time you were investigating. Right. So Kershaw loses the representation of Ray, right? They have a falling out. What happened? Now, this is going back to uh, going back at least maybe four or five months. Uh, we had arranged for uh, for for Playboy magazine to do an interview of James Earl Ray. Mm-hmm. So we were we were in the process of doing that and and then talking to Playboy and then they said, well, how about if we uh, we do a uh, a lie detector test? Uh, and so we talked to James about him doing a lie detector test and he said, well, I don't have you know he said I don't have no problem with because I'm I don't have nothing to lie about. And uh, and we arranged for a lie detector test. The lie detector guy, uh, he was kind of iffy to me from the beginning. He seemed he seemed like he had a, a a separate agenda than just finding out the truth. Uh, so he went up and he did some tests on Ray, and he came down all excited. He said, "Okay, I'm getting some." He said, "Don't worry, you know, don't worry. I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mess things up, you know." I'm protecting James Earl Ray. He said, but I'm, I'm getting down to the need and I need your permission to, to, to take another hour. So, uh, I want, you know, I, me and Jack wasn't going to just give him permission without talking to James. So I went up to where the, James was waiting in that room, all hooked up, you know, and I asked him, I said, can you, you know, stand another hour of this? And he said, yeah, he said, I can do it. So, so the guy did another hour and eventually what he concluded that was James was lying about stuff and of course back then i mean it, it's 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 a it's a better art it's more scientific today than it was then but even today courts don't allow lie detector tests because they know there's too much that can go wrong because they're, they're all subjective right yeah, they're all subjective. that's true mm-hmm. so that was really the beginning of of uh james and jack's friendship because Jack felt like that he had did wrong by letting that that guy do the lie detector test. And then uh, then of course Jack had been paid some money uh by someone related to the situation and 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 and, and James uh was a little bit uncomfortable about that. But we had brought we had already brought Mark Lane. We you know we we were going to transition to Mark Lane anyway. We brought okay. Mark Lane yeah, we brought Mark Lane in early in uh, you know seventy seven. We started uh, talking to him and bringing him in. He he came he came with a French group did a French TV broadcast. We we set that up for him you know and, and to meet James and talk about him being involved. And I met with him two or three times in Nashville. We we had some meetings with people together and his his uh, young lady friend who was also a lawyer. But uh, yeah, eventually we were going to turn it over to Mark anyway, and what and so with things happening with with James being a little unhappy, we you know basically Jack, Mark Lane took over from from Jack uh, later that year, I believe, or early the next year. I want to ask you this, Gary. Now, like I told you before, before we started recording, I actually did meet Jack Kershaw. And what I was told about him was that he had defended James Earl Ray, and that he had to quit because he received death threats. Was that true, or was that just a? That was part of it. That was okay. and, like, and like Jack said a couple of times, but, but Jack was very low key. When that would come up, all he would say, 
you know, to most people, well, he said, yeah, he said, I, I heard some grumblings about, you know, but yeah, yeah, he, I've been, you know, I mean, they'd killed my brother. They tried to kill me a number of times. Yeah, they, they wanted to take Jack out also. There's no doubt about that. So your brother, it was a direct result of the investigation? Well, uh, let me, I'll tell you what happened and you can, you can figure it out. Okay. okay. All right. Uh, so uh, I get a call from my mother and said, uh, said, Gary, uh, uh, Ray is dead. Yeah, I found him hanging in the garage. So I drove down from Nashville to Ocoee, Florida, a little town right outside of Orlando. And uh, turned out that Ocoee, I found out later on that there was a lot of Ku Klux Klan folks that uh, lived in that area. Mm-hmm. But that's I won't relate that at this time. But so so I get the day I got there, I went directly to the police department. And uh, I told him, I said, I want to see my brother's file and I want to see his personal effects. Because uh, I'm hearing that y- y'all are saying he committed suicide. And they said, OK. And uh, so they put me in a room and brought all the stuff out. And they called Jack Kershaw, how they all just, you know, just automatically knew to call Jack Kershaw. I don't know. But they talked, called Jack, said, you're, uh, you know, your guys here, uh, you know, looking at some of this stuff. And and Jack said, well, don't, you know, don't worry. He don't know nothing. You know, he just he just works with me, but he don't, you know, <laughs> you know, wanting to make them, you know, make make them comfortable with me being there, you know. Mm-hmm. So I looked at this stuff and I, you know, saw the pictures of my brother with the ligature thing around his neck, the mark, you know, how it cuts into the neck and causes that uh, imprint, you know. Uh, and uh, then they show me uh, some lyrics to a song. Now, I was a songwriter. My brother was a songwriter. So, you know, I knew, you know, I know songs when people are writing songs. They said, this is his suicide note. So that's why we knew he committed suicide. I said, that's not a suicide. No, that's a, that's a song. He's working on a song. <laughs> and he had been on the phone with his girlfriend. Uh, she said she came over to the house later on, and we, we were giving her some of the albums that Ray had. She came over, and she told me that she was on the phone with him when he just, uh, she heard like a gurgle, a fighting, you know, a, 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 a sound like a fighting and gur- a gurgling sound. And uh, she said he didn't, she never talked to him after that. And that was the day he was killed. Okay. After I left the office, uh, I called the uh, son, the, the Orlando Sentinel newspaper. And I talked to a reporter and I asked him if he would come out to my house and, and just go and, canvas the neighborhood and talk to the neighbors and see if they had heard or seen anything. So they said, okay, they say, they sent a reporter out and we began canvassing the neighborhood. So we get, uh, like my house on Mabel street there in Okoe was, um, was like, like right next to a corner, you know, we were there. I think there was another house there and another, and this house where you could look through their back, living room window and see the backyard of my house. That was where eventually I got to. And then this me and this reporter, we knocked on the door. The lady came to the door and I told her what we were doing. And she said, uh, well, come in, come in a minute. I want you to talk to someone. So we went in 
And uh, she brought this girl out who was no more than maybe 12 years old, 12, maybe 13 years old. And we were sitting on a sofa that we could look straight out her windows into my backyard. The little girl came and sat to the left of us in a, in a you know, single seat. Um, and we told her what, why we were there. And the girl looks, you know, afraid at first. She looked scared. And then her mother said, yeah, that's all right. Honey. Go ahead and tell them. Tell them. Tell them what you saw. She said, well, I was sitting right there where you're sitting. And I saw two men carry Ray out the back door of the house and he was limp his body was limp oh jeez wow. they, carried, they carried him into the garage through the there was a side door to the garage right there angled from the from my florida room back door right there and so they went straight into the back to the side door of the garage and uh when my mother got home the front door was open and the back door was open she had just went to the store she'd only been gone like an hour and she said she came. She said the front door was open. She doesn't understand why. She went. She started calling Ray, Ray, Ray. And there was no answer. She went and looked in the in his bedroom, and things were knocked around. And, and then she went and she and, and the back door was open. So she went out, and she as she stood, was stepped into the frame of the back door. She could see directly through the side door of the garage and in the frame of the side door was her son hanging by the neck dead. So that was a psychological setup right there. Right. Wow. I'm sorry about that, Gary. He, he, was, yeah. 19, he was 19 years old. I mean, was that something that was like a message to you or was this? Well, I it mean, turned out, yeah, I didn't know it. I didn't, I wasn't sure at the time, yeah, but then I called, right. called a few days later and said, we got to meet with you. Uh, you come down here to the uh, Fountain Blue Hotel and meet us by the pool. And they gave me some specifics about how I would know it was them. And so I, I drove down to the Fountain Blue and I went out to the pool and I waited and, and then two, two men came and, they were, you know, they were the the epitome of, of Italian mob. And they came over and sat down and started talking, well, you know, we got someone who wants to talk to you. And so I got in the car with them. We went to this very nice home within kind of a compound. And I, they took me into the conference room. And there was a uh, an intercom phone. Back then they had what was, you know, intercom phones. Yeah. And uh, so there was an intercom phone sitting on the on the conference table. Um they uh they said something to the person who was on the intercom, well he's here, you know. And uh, they said, you know, okay, Gary, uh and this person came over the phone and just uh started telling me, you know, what a nice guy I am. And, you know, they hate to see things bad happening to me. And, you know, they want me to do well and, and be, stay healthy, you know, and all that stuff. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't really too accommodating. Um, and uh, then the guy, one of the guys sitting at the table, one of the guys who I'd met at the Fountain Blue 
said, you know what? He looked at me and said, you're looking to be fitted with some cement shoes. Now, that, that wasn't the only time that I've been told that. I was, I've been told that before and after that, but, but he said it in a way I'd never heard it before. I mean, he said it in a way that it might happen 10 minutes from now, you know? Yeah, most people only hear that in movies. Yeah, well, I hear I heard it for real. But so so then I said, well, I said, well, um, I'm not really the kind of person that takes to threats. So, you know, whatever threats you want to make, uh, they're not going to stick to me. Then the guy on the phone comes back and says, uh, says, well, look, Gary, uh, you don't want to to have your wife and your children end up like your brother did. You don't want what happened to your brother to happen to your wife and children. So, you know, so that, you know, that's, that's when it kind of hit a chord with Mm me. Uh, That's when I, you know, that's when I started considering the whole thing. And uh, of course I said, well, of course not. And I'm not going to let it, (laughs) you know, Of course, uh, you can't. You you don't have any choice if they decide that's what they're going to do, you know. But so after that, they took me back. I got my car, went back to Okoye. Went to my brother's funeral. I went back to Nashville. Now, uh, typically, I had the usually I had those records in a those uh the assassination records that William Sullivan had given me, usually I had them in a briefcase in, in my car because I didn't right. want to leave them anywhere. And I had them underneath the thing. I had a thing that he'd raise up for the tire, and I had them underneath there where the, the tire was, not just out where someone would notice the briefcase. But, uh, <clears throat> but when we got back to Nashville, I went to my apartment. I had, I had a really nice apartment. They're at the uh, Glastonbury House Apartments. I don't know if you've ever heard of them or seen them. They, they're out near the airport. They have those around uh, uh, round rooms on the corners. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can. Pro- they're probably still there. You can probably find them. I, that's where I live, the Glastonbury Apartments. And uh, I was in one of the bigger ones, and, and I went, and the door was open. There was a big hole right in front of my front door like about two foot deep. Uh, well, just a little off to the side of it. There's a little room where you could get in. I went in. There was holes dug in my apartment. Uh, so I went to the manager and I said, none of my stuff's in my apartment. And there's holes all over. And she said, well, we thought there was a leak. We were looking for a leak. Mm-hmm. So people were, were opening up the floors and the walls looking for something? Yeah. So... So she gave me a one a smaller apartment. She said, you can just stay there. Here's the key to your new apartment. You can just stay there. And I signed something you know, for the key. And she said, I'm not even going to ask you to pay rent until we get it fixed so you can go back into the apartment you leased. And I said, okay. So, so we were in this. Uh, and it just so happened that the apartment I was in now, directly category from my front door, maybe, maybe 15 20 yards, if that much, was the front door of a Tennessee state police officer. So they arranged for me to have company. And uh, so 
So we were we were there. We were there through Christmas. This was seventy seven. We were there through through Christmas, and then early into the. It was either shortly after Christmas or early into the new year. There was a knock at my door. I opened the door, and it was a marshal. He said, "Gary," he said, "Son, we've got an eviction notice for you." And I said, "Well, that's strange. I don't know how that could be, because uh, I'm not even supposed to be paying rent in this apartment until they get my other one fixed." He said, "Well, here it is." He showed it to me, and he had several guys with him, and they just started coming in and taking my stuff out. And my son, who was about Gary Revel Jr., he was four or five years old. Uh, he said, uh, "He said, Daddy, he said they're taking my toys." And I said, well, son, don't worry. I said, we're just too important to have to move our own stuff. They just sent somebody to help us move it. And um, that was the only thing I could think to say, you know, to try to keep him from getting more upset than he possibly would be. So, uh, you know, I was mainly interested in what was happening with my kids' stuff. But by then, I'd, I'd had the, I had my, you know, I'd had my files in my, in my apartment. By then, I'd put them in my apartment. Well, uh, uh, they threw my stuff out beside the road out there in front of Glastonbury Apartments as they was moving it out. They just threw it on the side of the road. They didn't stack it. They didn't do nothing nice about it. Uh, so by the time that I had my wife and kids and we went out there to start trying to, to save some stuff, I called Jack. He brought a truck over and we started loading the truck. And I started looking for my files, and uh, I've never found them since then. So they they decided that uh, I would not be able to prove anything by making sure I no longer had any files that could prove anything. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wow. <laughs> that's that's pretty wild. Um what was Jack Kershaw's initial interest in in representing Ray? I mean, you know, locally in Nashville, people might know his name. He's been portrayed in the media as a racist mostly because of his his uh Nathan Bedford Forrest statue and things like that. And he, he wasn't legal activist against desegregation efforts in the 60s, but so it's painted that, you know, he wanted to represent someone who who did kill king but what was his actual initial interest exactly that's the angle that a lot of people use about jack well well you got to know i i knew jack really really well he was a he was a friend of been I, I knew him for since like 70 73 to 1980 when i left uh, nashville in 1980 and all that time we spent a lot of time together in the office and just uh uh, probably thousands of hours, if not several hundred. And he just wasn't that kind of guy. I mean, I can tell you, he didn't hate blacks. He had bl- blacks in his house all the time. He had blacks lived on his property. You know, they owned a lot of property even then uh, outside of Nashville and some in Nashville. But uh, he never had a bad word to say about black people. Now, he had this persona, you know, public persona, that he kind of let it go that way, you know, like he did the the uh, Bedford statue, you know, and you know, and he had he had that, uh, you know, uh, uh, he kind of he kind of honored Bedford, you know. Well, yeah, he he would be considered a a, a neo Confederate, or he had a lot of you know sympathies for the, the lost cause. Yeah, yeah. But as far as as far as him having being uh, being a racist or being uh, personally, I'm not as a person, human being, as far as him being racist or looking down on black people in any way whatsoever, I never saw it in his personal life ever. So, you know, you can take that for however you want to take it. But that's that's just what, how I knew him. Yeah, that was just the the elephant in the room that I know someone's going to ask about. So, what was his interest in representing Ray initially? Well, that's that's what that's what he told me. He said, you know, he said this this poor fellow didn't even get a chance, you know, to have a trial. He said, and and he told me he was the first one to tell me. He said when he did try to speak up, he said that big oaf. Percy Foreman, you know, he he wasn't he didn't have nice things to say about Percy Foreman. He said he grabs. Uh, James by the by the shoulder and pushed him back down to his seat and told him to shut up. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when James had stood up and trying to say, "Look, I, I don't agree with this. You know, I don't agree with you know, I don't I don't agree with what the prosecutors are saying. I did, and what and what James was saying is, yeah, I was there. Yeah, I I knew those people involved, but I did not shoot Martin Luther King." That's that's the point that James R. Ray tried to make from then on is and, and 
to his dying breath, he never changed his mind. He didn't do no deathbed confession saying, okay, yeah, I did it. No, he never changed his mind. And I've saw him interviewed. I've saw him questioned. I've saw they, they go at him one way, then they come at him with another. They did everything for a whole year there at Brushy Mountain Prison. The attorneys and the investigators from the House Assassinations Committee did everything they good, could to trip him up. And they never once was able to do it. And we have to mention, too, that while Kershaw was representing him, he had another escape attempt, right? Or he actually did escape. Yeah, he escaped while we were. Yeah, as a matter of fact, thank God. <laughs> thank God I had had uh, I had had a a a, uh, a hernia. I had had a hernia operation. And thank God I was in the hospital when he escaped. Because if I hadn't have been in the hospital, I'd been out in those woods trying to find him, and I might have got killed. I mean, who knows? <laughs> yeah, because there was some uh, there's some bad dudes who escaped with them, from what I understand. Yeah, that's right. Um, so this is really revolving around the idea that that the mafia was this hit squad arm for these various interests that came together. Uh, you know, there's all the shady stuff around the COINTELPRO and what the FBI and the, the feds were doing. Is there also like a hint that there was some kind of organized racist as a part of this also? No, this wasn't about racism at all. It was about money. And uh, the bottom line, the, the DEA told me uh, during that time when I would talk to him about, you know, the situation uh, they told me that through the nineteen, from early nineteen, the early nineteen sixties through nineteen seventy five, uh, the Italian mafia was making about thirty billion dollars a year from the heroin pipeline. The heroin pipeline was the uh, was the way that heroin was distributed from Burma back now. It's uh, Myanmar, but back then it was Burma. The poppy fields of Burma furnished. 80 to 90 percent of the heroin to the world and that's the golden triangle right right yep. so, and that would come down the mekong river make through the mekong delta i mean our military protected the route for the mafia uh, for for the heroin pipeline and sometimes we even helped them deliver the stuff to the united states and one of the reasons we protected it because they, there was black arms deals along with that. The Chinese mafia wanted that market and other organized groups around the world wanted that market. And since we, our intelligence people were tied into the mafia to the Italians, we wanted to make sure that they kept, we, they kept it. So that's, that's what, that was the bottom line on that. And so when, well, for example, when John F. Kennedy, uh, in early November of uh, 63, he sent a letter to the National Security Council, or whatever it was back then. I don't even know if that was the name. But anyway, the letter said, I want 1,000 American troops brought back from Vietnam by the end of 63, the end of this year, 1963. He was going to start pulling out, he's going to start pulling out the advisors. Exactly. Point, yeah. And then he mm -hmm. said, by the end of, of next year, 64, I want all the rest. Mm -hmm. I want every, every uniformed military person out of Vietnam. Okay. When he did that, 
that was his death nail. Because when he did that, that would have that would have brought back the support for the heroin pipeline, and and what the mafia would say, well, you're taking food off my table. See, they were making too much money off of that. They didn't. They they could not afford to let somebody shut it down. Uh, so between that and then the, the CIA's bad blood with the, of course he had he had already filed Dulles, as y'all probably know. Dulles had been head of the CIA, and then they were they were mad at him because of the Bay of Pigs operation, because he didn't provide the support that they thought he was supposed to provide, and there was a lot of them in the CIA wanted him dead because of that. Uh, then you got the military industrial complex, which would have been hurt if he had shut down the Vietnam War. So you got you got three powerful groups. You got mm-hmm. the mafia. You got the intelligence CIA, and you got the military industrial complex. You got all three of those. When he wrote that letter, of course they found out, and they said, "Okay, we we gotta we gotta end him, and we gotta do it fast." And it was carried out the same way that later the MLK assassination would. Well, yeah, and they did the same thing with Sirhan Sirhan, and they did the same thing with Mark Chapman and and John Lennon. When King comes out against the Vietnam War, that's really when the order goes out. Exactly. On, on April, uh, yeah, on April fourth, uh, nineteen sixty-seven, one yep. year to the day before he was killed, he stood in the Riverside Church in New York and made a public outcry against the Vietnam War. And it's funny how they, one year later to the date, killed him. Now, y'all may not think much about that, but that's that's a psychological thing. It's symbolism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this guy came out against us, and yeah. we killed him one year later to the day, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. A lot say that King was killed because the worry was, since he was the leader of black people in America, well, you, yeah, had, black, you had the black messiah, yeah. Yeah, you had, you had so many african-american soldiers in vietnam that if he the worry was that if they he gave the word they would stop fighting or they wouldn't want to want to go over there you know so so there was a lot of there was a lot of concern in certain circles that that could actually happen yeah that was that was part of it they they definitely didn't want him to do a full boycott of the war um and uh, you know, and the fact that he had spoken out against it, you know, it was, it was going. You know, and he was a Nobel Peace Prize winner by that time too. Yeah. He was a powerful force. You know. Well, I'm just asking if could some of the racist groups have been involved with this though? Because I mean, they had they had a common. It was kind of a common enemy, right? It's you know that was the. Well, yeah, yeah, okay. But let me let me explain something that people often show me documents and stuff about how the. Uh, the KKK and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, well, uh, it, during that time, uh, the KKK had FBI informants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so any if, if the KKK had even planned this and done it, they couldn't have done it without the FBI's help. So that's what I tell them. You know, you, you can say that if you want to, but it doesn't matter. The FBI... 
was the ace in the hole all the time anyway. The yeah. FBI could have stopped them. If, they, if, the, if the KK had went to try to do this on their own, the FBI would have stopped them anyway. And we know for absolute certainty that the COINTELPRO was on to King, that, you know, J. Edgar Hoover had bugged King's bedroom, had recordings of, of King having affairs with women and would actually listen to them. And it, you know, yeah. So I mean, we know that without a shadow of a doubt that yeah, that's all. That's, that's all document. On. Yeah, that's all right. history. You know, the letter that they wrote trying to get him to kill himself. You know, that's all history. That's all right. Verifiable, yeah. documented history. Right. And you know, then his brother, you know, uh, A. D. King. You know, he he died about a year. He he was found uh, dead in his swimming pool about a year after M. L. K. was killed. I think one point to make, too, about King's family is they didn't believe the official story. And in fact, I think King's son met with James Earl Ray before James Earl Ray died. Yeah, Dexter went and met with him and heard him tell his story. And he came out saying, this man did not kill my daddy. You know, I know that he said, I I just, you know, I know he did. Do we have an idea of who pulled the trigger? Uh, Yeah, the the fellow that pulled the trigger was... 90, 99% likely to have been Lucian Sardi, the very same person who shot and killed John F. Kennedy. Yeah, I was about to ask you about that, because that name sounded really familiar. I mean, he's the one with the expertise yeah. and everything. I mean, he's the guy, that, the kind of guy you would hire to do something like that. He had the international uh, cred, street cred, and he killed a lot of people, and he you could trust him to pull it off. Wow. So the possibility that the same person assassinated both of these leaders well there's no doubt in my mind that it was lucian sardi and he and it was from the back yard there it wasn't from that rooming house bathroom either e howard hunt was in the bathroom and he was identified uh by charlie stevens and the fbi said that he had they had, he identified james or ray and uh, I, I later met charlie charles charlie stout, charles stout he was a cbs reporter from Los Angeles, and he was in Memphis, and he told me, he said, I went and interviewed uh, Charlie Stevens, and I even have a tape on it, and it's public. There's an audio tape of him talking to Charles Stevens, and he asked him, he said, he showed him a picture of James Earl Ray. He said, is this the person you identified for the FBI as the person who left the bathroom after the shot was fired? And Charlie Stevens is on tape saying, no, that is not the person. Wow. Well, they didn't even have evidence to prove James Earl Ray did it. See, that's the thing. And then the gun was thrown in the front. You know, and I've, I've talked to a lot of criminals about this. And I was, sometimes I would go about it. And I said, you know, if you do, if you might do a major crime, would you like take your gun and your personal belongings and just throw it down on the street as you was leaving? And they all say, hell no, <laughs> no way. So James Earl Ray was supposed to have shot and killed King and then took his stuff and just threw it on the street and took off. Like... <laughs> You know, the whole case is so, so ridiculous against James Earl Ray that after a while, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't see the fallacies in them trying to blame this on James Earl Ray, you just, you just don't have eyes to see. Just like Oswald left the man liquor Carcano just sitting there, right? Yeah. You know, just for, you know, just like with a, with a full shit, with a few shells surrounding it. Yeah. 
and then you know, and then he flew down to the second floor lunchroom, you know, within seconds. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and didn't t- didn't take the steps, didn't didn't take the stairs, didn't take the elevator. He just appeared from the sixth floor to the lunchroom, of which no one sees him going down the stairs. We could talk about that all day. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, the, the, case, the cases are very similar, you know. And, yeah, and, right. It's the same they, pattern. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, they set someone up to take the fall. That's that's how they do it. What makes you think that Sartee did it, though, with MLK? A lot of it had to do with the files that I had that I can't, I can't, I can't prove. So that's why, I'm, right. that's why I just say I report what I found. I don't try mm-hmm. to. I don't try to put the pieces together, you know, to, to call someone. And also, let me say this. Um, I understand. I understand why millions of people believe that Oswald did it. Millions of people believe they've been fed this propaganda. They've been told over and over again, the assassin of JFK Oswald, the assassin of Martin Luther King. It You know, and it's in our history books that way. They have been. Up- uploaded this garbage for so many years that most people they just accept it so i don't have any problem with people that don't understand what i'm talking about i know it's probably a lot you don't have to go into too much detail but what were the main pieces of evidence that you and kershaw were trying to use to um uh throw some doubt into whether Ray pulled the trigger. Well, I, I've, I've kind of touched on uh, yeah. several of those things. The, the fact that, that uh, well, okay, let me, let me give you this uh, really, really important, crucial detail. The, we, while we were running the case, we had them do another test of the rifle because the, the rifle had not been proven to be the murder weapon, even when we started. Uh, the gut, the bullet that was uh, in in uh, Martin Luther King that they took out of King, that was the bullet that that supposedly killed him. I know there's other people say, well, he was killed in the doctor's office and all that, but there, it was the bullet that really sent him to the doctor, anyways. <laughs> so uh, the, connecting that bu- bullet to a gun was crucial evidence for a trial. Even in 1977, when we had more tests done trying to prove, we did, you know, all kind of lead analysis, a bullet analysis of trajectories of, of shooting another other bullets out of that gun, trying to connect that bullet to that gun. To this day, you cannot prove that that gun was used to kill King. And that's really the most important evidence in any trial these days is you got to prove the weapon. Mm-hmm. And if you can't prove the weapon, you got no weapon to, to to bring about the crime. And they didn't have it. They didn't have it then. They don't have it today. It was just all based on his initial lack of a trial. Right, right. And then, of course, uh, the, in 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 the uh, in the actual analysis of the uh, guilty plea hearing, you see that he objected. You see that he was uh, he was uh, interrupted by. Percy Foreman, you know, and, and and they just went on like he had agreed that he, you know, that he was pleading guilty to the whole, you know, to shooting King when he wasn't pleading guilty to that. And then that the next day he he went and he got a good. Now here's the thing also: he was under a lot of psychological twenty four hour day lights and cameras and all at the Memphis jail. Uh, he told me he never got a good night's sleep the whole time he was there. 
And he said, I got to prison. He said, I got the first time I had a good night's sleep. And he, he says he thinks they must have been drugging him because the first night he woke up the next day, his mind was clearer than it had been for months. And he said he immediately sat down and wrote that letter, realizing that he didn't plead guilty to killing Martin Luther King. So he wrote a letter to the judge saying he wanted a trial by jury. But they didn't grant it. Because he had already... Well, he, they, was, they, he, was, fixing, yeah. he, was, he was fixing to grant it. The yeah. Judge Battle... Uh, and one of the things I did while I was investigating was talk to his wife, uh, Mrs. Battlemare in Memphis, and she told me that he was he had left he he had, he had went to his office that day to write the letter to grant James Earl Ray a trial. Uh, he was found with his head slumped over on that very desk, and and uh, it is said that James Earl Ray's letter asking for a trial was right there on on the top of the desk. Man. He supposedly died of a heart attack. Then another judge, a few, you know, that's some good timing. Yeah, and another judge, a few years later, he was planning on uh, on trying to give uh, Ray a trial, and he and he died of a, mysteriously of a heart attack at an in, in, you know in inappropriate time as well. Yeah, I think that there was a couple in the House Select Committee on Assassinations. I think there was one, at least one, mysterious death. But this was about JFK, about. Yeah, no, we had, we had, that I know of, we had, I can't name them right off, but I know we had six, six people within that time period uh, that were important to the case that could have made a difference that, that died mysteriously uh, during that time. So at least six, and there was, there was actually, you know, you know, and there was, uh, you know, in the time, a little before and a little after, there was just all kinds of people. <laughs> and it was, it was just a slew of people that just, um, all in 1977-78 in that time period? Well, yeah. in, in, in earlier, yeah, and earlier in this, you know, yeah. after the JFK thing, there was people, you know, and there was like FBI agents that were reassigned who started getting wise. There was, you know, and like that uh, that Bolden, you know, that black uh, Secret Service guy, you know, he was, uh, he, he was, you know, railroaded. Um, just so many, so many people. Wow. And then, uh, well, another part of this is uh, while you were doing your investigation, your songwriting and performance skills were put to work, right? And you came out with a uh, a country music song, They Slew the Dreamer. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I was uh, I was at the office one day uh, there, Jack. It's a uh, if anyone wants to look and see if I don't think it's still there, it may be. It was a little office right on Leland Way, uh, right near the intersection there. And it was uh, as you're going south, it was to the left. You'd drive a little um, a little road, and there was a little bridge. You'd go over the bridge, and it was a small office back there. And the the, the little bridge had a little creek that flowed. And as I was uh, I was there one day, and I took my guitar and I walked out, and I just uh, sat on the banks of that little creek, and I started thinking about it, and that's where I wrote "They Slew the Dreamer." Now I gave Mary, Jack's wife, I gave her partial, you know, partial credit for the song just because she had uh, had a lot to do with, uh, you know, encouraging me and inspiring me uh, in the case. But uh, yeah, I wrote it that day. That day I was sitting by the creek. There, it's called "They Slew the Dreamer," and then I. I played it for Johnny Ardellian and for uh, Wesley Rose. Wesley Rose was uh, 
was uh, Fred Rose's son. He was running a cup Rose for Roy and his, his okay. dad. And uh, I played it for Wesley and for Johnny Erdelian there. And um, they said, let's record this. And so I recorded it. Yeah, we put it out as a single record, which was immediately torpedoed uh, to make sure it didn't have any commercial success. Yeah, you said that the Nashville banner did kind of a hit piece on you. Top top fold of the front page. James Earl Ray promotion gimmick. Wow. And you even mentioned uh, Raul in the lyrics, right? That's right, yeah. You've re-released this in a digital format uh, where people can find it, right? So if anyone wants to hear it, they can go check it out. Yeah, it's worldwide, and and one of the uh, one of the uh, one of them I have is got the Memphis Police Dispatch recording right mixed into the record. The the very moment that J, that MLK was shot, mm-hmm. uh, the announcer, the dis, police dispatchman comes on and says, "The Reverend King has been shot," and then it goes on and talk. They talk to each other, you know, the policemen how they're handling the uh, going to the crime scene. Well, everyone should be able to find that pretty easy. Uh, would you mind if could we play some of the of the song on the on the show? Sure. Okay, we might play it straight off of the the forty five record that I've got of this actually. you tell uh, all the the people uh, some of the your other endeavors and your your writing and where people can find your books well i, I can i can tell you that uh, my granddaughter uh ariel who is uh, who has autism she is in the room right now okay and she may be making some noise that you might be wondering what that is 
but uh, she's the, she's a very special person. She's the kind of person I wouldn't tell her to to go away or anything like that. So she's uh, she's just walked in and she's standing there. So if you hear some noise, that's that's what that's about. That's okay. This was also uh, made into a screenplay, right? All your the story of your your life and investigation into this. Well, we we yeah we have a screenplay. Uh, it's being developed as a feature movie. Uh, the uh, executive producer now is a, a gentleman by the name of Jeff J E F F O L M, and Jeff has been uh, helping to make big successful movies ever since Titanic. Now he plays different, you know, he does different things on these movies. He's not the executive producer like he is on this for this movie, but he's done all kind of things. You know, he was in the meetings in, in over 20 movies that have been major blockbusters. He's been a part of making. So he's my executive producer on the MLK, the Gary Rebel story. Okay. Wow. And then, um, you have a lot of different books available on Amazon uh, about your life and other stuff. Can you just tell everyone where they can find your music and your books? Well, uh, if, they, if they Google uh, To Live or Maybe Not and the name Gary Rebel, that's my memoir. That has some details about uh, uh, the, the, a little bit about the case. If they uh, if they find my book, Don't Stop Dancing, Stranger Than Fiction, that's the story of my investigation of the life, music, and career of Michael Jackson. If they Google and find us, uh, the uh, the notice of the screenplay, uh, King of the Little People, that's my screenplay about the assassination of John Lennon. Uh, Mark Chapman at one time had said he was king of the little people that lived in his walls. Yeah, this has been fascinating, Gary. I want to thank you for for coming on. Uh, man, this has been a riveting conversation. You've got a website. You got a YouTube channel. Well, I'm you know like my YouTube is YouTube dot dot com slash Gary Revel G A R Y R E V E L at one L and um, my iTunes channel with where I've got couple of hundred songs is uh is itunes.com slash gary revel i'm on spotify just, just about anything that has to do with music and videos and entertainment i have stuff that's available mdb you know that's the movie database mm-hmm. one thing that's good about the uh the fact that god has uh protected me and and really i just you know without god's help i wouldn't be alive today i can tell you that for sure God has protected me all these years so that I would be able to talk to people about this. I hear you. We'll, we'll, we'll have to get you back on and delve in more into these subjects because there's a lot to talk about. Maybe we can get into the John Lennon, the Michael Jackson stuff too. Uh, but uh, stay on the line for us because we're going to close this section out. We'll come back to close out the show and we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. That was something. Yeah, that was, was something else. I'm going to tell you right now that that's probably one of the most riveting guests that we've had on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's why my first question was, you know, what's the difference between an investigator and a researcher? And he he really lived it, you know. And when I first came across um, 
him in researching Jack Kershaw. Yeah, why don't we talk about that? Let's talk about how you came across him, how we know about him, Gary Ravel. Yeah, so um, I was researching Jack Kershaw as someone who I think represents a kind of esoteric neo-confederacism, um, something you know we personally talk a lot about, haven't talked a lot about on the show, uh, talked a little bit about on a uh, Patreon farm episode with Recluse, but I came. Which is, ac- yeah, it's on the it's on our Patreon. Yeah, it's on our way. Patreon also. Yeah. Um, but I so I came across Gary's name and found his website um, that has a lot of uh, you know details of his uh, assignment as a special investigator uh, by Jack uh, Kershaw. I was just kind of you know blown away by by the stories, and it's like a uh, almost like a movie. So I, I really did want to want to get him on. I think he represents a time period of investigator and journalists who were really uh, really more hands on and and I guess uh, kind of Gonzo style boots on the ground had to really get out there and and speak to people and that's something I think is really you know missing from from today's community for sure can i explain jack kershaw a little bit yeah absolutely can i talk about this yeah so okay i'll just we'll start here for the longest time as you come into nashville on i-65 north if you're coming that direction which is if you're driving which is from alabama 65 north as you kind of enter into metro nashville which is davidson county it's the same thing as you enter in, there was for the longest time, it's not there anymore, there was longest time, there was this silly looking statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest. And this got national okay. attention for and over a decade. I remember, right, and I remember like just like laughing at this thing of how silly it looked. And it looked silly, you know. You, if you can Google Nathan Bedford Forrest statue, Nashville. You might get the bus at the Capitol, which they removed, but okay. Uh, so but, do you have to explain who Nathan Bedford Forrest is? Now? No, well, well, he was a Civil War general, uh, Confederate Civil War general. Anyway, hopefully you guys are up on that. For the longest time, this thing was there, and I always like wondered about it. I tried to like actually go up to it, but I couldn't one time because it was like, like took a whole group out there, friends, and we went out there and tried to get. But you had to get across the railroad tracks, and it was just like. It was because it, it was owned by it was private land next to a railroad. Okay. Owned by Bill Doris, my former landlord. Right. Yeah. So there's all kinds of connections here. So I was married at the time. This was 2007. My ex-wife had a friend that lived close to where Jack Kershaw lived, and by this guy that his her husband said, "I need we need to go check on Jack." Okay. And I was like, "This some old guy. And I said, well, who's Jack? You know, and he explained to me, well, he's the guy that built the statue on I-65. And I'm like, oh, really? Right. So I'm like, cool. Well, I get to talk, kind of talk to this guy. Yeah. And um, so we go over there and Jack was asleep. And turns out my like my ex-wife's aunt actually cleaned his house, too. And but then we were over there again, and we went over there again. Now this time Jack was awake, and I got to talk to him. And Nathan Bedford Forrest was his hero, okay? right? 
And which, to just clarify, uh, Adam Sane is not a neo-Confederate. Yes. We have definitely been desensitized to believers in the lost cause growing up in Tennessee. Yes. Yes. So it's not shocking to us. No, it wasn't something that was unusual in the least bit. Um, Especially when you grow up, you know, you grandparents generation or what our grandparents generation or whatever but so went over there i got to talk to him he had this he had this painting a small painting that he had did he had done of the battle of nashville which was towards the end of the civil war uh depicted nathan bedford forrest he had not very kind things to say about the general john hood and he said something to me about like well this was the battle this was the battle that decided the war that said whether we would be a republic or an empire so I remember him saying that, and he was very old. He was in his nineties. Um, he went to. Uh, we then went into his studio, and I mentioned the these things were made out of sh- these these statues he made out of like sheet metal, right? Okay, and I mentioned that the Nathan Bedford Forrest statue was really silly. You know, it looked really silly. Well, he had this enormous statue of the burning of Joan of Arc at the stake. And this thing was amazing. Okay. Um, and that's what I remember, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, you know, I, and I told Serfiel about this a while, a while back and he started looking into Jack Kershaw. Kershaw died in like 2010. I think this was like 2007 when I met him. Uh, but I was also told at the time that he was he had been the lawyer for James Earl Ray, which mm-hmm. was also fascinating. But I, you know, I only got to talk to him for just a few minutes, um, and that was it. But Serfiel's done a lot more research into Kershaw. Yeah, he is a uh, he was the last kind of connection to the fugitive poets. It was a. a literary group out of Vanderbilt that was very uh, inspirational in uh, the new criticism uh, methods of literary criticism. They're very popular. Um, And um, members of the fugitives developed a not organized political movement, but a movement known as Southern Agrarianism, uh, who made a manifesto called I'll Take My Stand. And it... uh, it's kind of an update of the lost cause um, against the forces of industrialization and modernism and liberalism. And it really takes the lost cause and uh, puts it in league with other historical reactionary forces against uh, the New Deal later in particular. And one of these fugitives who later became uh, one of the most outspoken Southern agrarians was Donald Davidson, Mm-hmm. Who uh, these people? A lot of them were like students and professors at Vanderbilt, right? And Donald Davidson did establish a relationship with Jack Kershaw during the initial uh, desegregation efforts, which Jack Kershaw was a uh, judicial activist against in uh, the surrounding areas of uh, Middle Tennessee, uh, Oak Ridge. And some surrounding towns so in these Nashville. Guys, they were pre, they were pro segregationists. Yes, Let's just put that in. We'll just say it as it is. They were pretty rapidly pro segregationists. And I'm sure you know 
Jack would have said that, you know, he was just a, a kind of a libertarian of sorts or, or, you know, pro states rights and thought it was encroaching federal government that was trying to uh, force social relations on people. So, yeah, I'm sure he would not identify as a racist, though, that would definitely be interpreted uh, as that now. The, the the statue, we should just say what happened to it. Now, this was a big controversial thing. I actually remember a thing on the Phil Valentine show. I remember Kershaw would actually call in. Yeah, I didn't even wow. know who he was. But I remember that he would actually call in and defend the statue and all this type of thing. And uh, uh, Kershaw dies in 2010. But the statue isn't removed until pretty recently, right? Wasn't it? You know, I think it was a couple years ago. Yeah. If that. And the reason for that was because... Bill Doris, Jack Kershaw's friend, or rather, Sir William Doris. There's a whole right. story behind that. Yeah. Um, he passed. Yeah. And I believe his um, his survivors did not want to continue to main, maintain it, which it had been... Um, vandalized several times was covered in pink paint by that time so um it was already kind of strange looking sculpture but now it was covered in pink paint Um, so yeah so they they took it down and everybody celebrated um and um yeah yeah so that's yeah that's the story of the nathan bedford forest statue if you're from nashville from a particular time you remember this um, but it's but so that's how Sir Fiel found out about Gary was Gary's association with Jack Kershaw, and because Gary worked with as you probably as you heard Gary worked for him uh, at because Kershaw was a lawyer for James Earl Ray. So that's yeah that's Kershaw who um, had a long friendship uh, with. The person you just heard, uh, Gary Revel, or Revel, I believe it's Revel, yeah. Uh, as far as how he pronounces it, but yeah, what did you think about that, Adam? That was a uh, man. I mean, there's so much to unpack. Uh, you know, I've never been convinced fully about James Earl Ray mm-hmm. as being the assassin. Um, we've talked to other people. I, mean, I think we've talked to like Craig Ciccone. Uh, we talked about this in one of the earlier episodes we had him on. Uh, I've never been fully convinced about that. I've always felt that uh, King was really killed because of him speaking out against Vietnam. Uh, I never really thought of the whole like mafia connection when it came to Martin Luther King. I always felt that it was more uh, like some racist group that did it. Right. Uh, but which is a common assumption, which is, yeah, which is, it's interesting that he throws that in there. Uh, and I mean, he talked to people, so I mean, it's a possibility, but you know, it's not, it's not too far fetched when you think about how the mob and some of our intelligence agencies have collaborated in the past. And there might be, uh, they might have the same reasons to kill someone so which to him was really about the maintaining the the golden triangle right heroin supply right yeah 
Um, you know, the Lucian Sartee thing is interesting. Uh, he says that, you know, uh, Sartee was this, cor- he was a Corsican uh, assassin, basically. And he killed, uh, saying that he killed Martin Luther King. And then he also killed JFK, which that kind of, you know, I don't know how exactly I feel about that, but kind of interesting that there's that connection to Lucian Sartee. If you guys ever watch a documentary that I've seen quite a lot called The Men Who Killed Kennedy. You can find the whole thing, all seven hours of this thing on YouTube. It's something that like came out in like the late 80s and uh, I think you know into like the mid 90s I think is when it stopped. But there's a, one of the episodes is pretty compelling. There was a, there was a researcher uh, his name was Steve Ravel which I would have loved to have gotten this guy on. But he ended up talking to this Corsican assassin that was in prison. And he had information about Kennedy. And he pretty much said that uh, Lucien Sarti uh, confessed to him that he killed JFK. So, who knows? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're never going to know. We're never going to know the full story about any of this. But according to uh, Gary Revel, who we just spoke to, he had files directly from William Sullivan, who was yeah. the head of COINTELPRO. Right, right. And had a falling out with J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. And he personally provided him with these files that were later stolen, apparently. Yeah. But if anyone were to know some of the full scoop of the stuff, it would have been William Sullivan. Yeah, that's true. He was killed because a guy thought that he was a deer. <laughs> a sheriff's son, I believe, is <laughs> yeah, what, sheriff's what son. Gary said. Thought he was a deer. Was he walking on all fours? I mean, what you know? What exactly was going on? <laughs> There's so many. You'll, you'll see that in a lot of these, like CIA and FBI and intelligence guys. You know that these really lame causes of death, really lame. Yeah reasons that are given yeah it's ridiculous that that yeah and that was the same year the house uh, select committee of assassinations was going on that yeah. was that same year and i was going to point out I, I didn't get to say it but um in the jfk stuff uh george de morenschild who was scheduled to testify at the house select committee on assassinations he committed suicide, supposedly. And George de Morenschild was a friend of Lee Harvey Oswald that a lot of people suspect as being like one of his handlers in Dallas, which is weird because de Morenschild was a white Russian emigre, mm-hmm. anti-communist, who supposedly was hanging out with this communist, you know. And it's suspicious as hell that de Morenschild kills himself right before he's about to testify so that uh and and the house select committee on assassinations i mean they they a lot of people forget about them like that's just kind of like that's really kind of just glossed over in that their conclusion was that there was a conspiracy right with john f kennedy's assassination and martin luther king's assassination and that it needed to be investigated further, but it was closed down. And it it's something that came out of 
after Watergate, there was a ton of investigations of all the shit that had gone on. Um, it spawned out of that because people were really distrustful of the government after Watergate. Yeah. And that's where you got things like the Church Committee, which that exposed MK Ultra, mm-hmm. And then you had the South House Select Committee on Assassinations. So there was a ton of this that was going on. And then it just all, you know, they made their conclusion and then nothing was ever really done. But a lot of people forget about that, that the official line of the federal government is actually that there was a conspiracy with both those assassinations. And according to Revel, they were a part of the same conspiracy. Right. All revolving around Vietnam. Yeah. And the heroin trade. Well, can I I mean... This is just going around in my head after listening to him that he mentioned Lucien Sartre and he mentioned E. Howard Hunt, which I had never heard of E. Howard Hunt being part of the Martin Luther King stuff. I had never heard that before. Um, now, some people don't take a stock in this, and I think I've talked about this before. E. Howard Hunt had his deathbed confession. And he basically spilled the beans on the whole thing, in my opinion. In my opinion, it's like case closed. Um, He said that there was, it was a team that was assembled, that was basically hired by elements in the government to get rid of JFK, or in the military industrial complex. I don't want to say government. This guy was hired to assemble a team. His name was Cord Meyer. He was a CIA guy, and he and A. Howard Hunt had worked together before. Interesting thing about Cord Meyer is that his wife had an affair with JFK. So it's like the oldest thing in the book that you got the jealous husband and like, that's the perfect guy. If you want to get JFK killed, this guy's got a motive. He wants to get it done too. Right. Uh, I think what happened is that these people probably, they never disbanded after JFK. They were probably became like this kill squad for hire that basically they were like okay they took people from different places took them from the cia maybe took them from fbi took them from the mafia took them from the cubans took them from wherever and they all got together and whatever they were told whatever they were hired to do they got it done and other people in the government other people that were in the bureaucracy you know that had the power to cover certain things up or had a vested interest because they didn't like because they're glad somebody did it somebody killed this person uh they helped cover it up too so that's kind of what i think happened yeah that's this this confluence of all these interests who wanted these people dead right and which um gary kind of equates the FBI to being the the same people as a lot of the organized racism in the KKK in particular, because the KKK had so many federal informants that it's kind of hard to you know determine who's running who at that point. Um, but there definitely had to be some elements of organized racism in this as well, you know, if not just to help provide cover or whatever it was. Yeah. So, uh, this was a really good one, guys. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this and our little exposition on it. Um, it had a uh, especially a Nashville 
flavor, of course. Yeah, and did. that's, uh, you know, yeah. there's a lot of uh, the strange stuff that, that uh, involves Nashville. And uh, Gary lived here for a long time. And uh, as, a, as a country music guy. So, you know, that brings all this together. All right, guys. Uh, thanks for listening. As usual, uh, we have our Patreon. If you guys want to support us, um, throw us some money our way. We got a lot of stuff you, you guys can listen to. Trying to get a little better about putting stuff up lately, but there are a couple of things we've done this year. And you guys can also go back and listen to uh, Sirfiel expound a little bit more on this and on Jesse James too. Uh, with that, with what he did with Recluse, that's on there too. Uh, if you guys want to hear that so as low as five dollars a month one dollar if you want to just you know support us and you get to listen to shows from pre 2021 lots of stuff on there so if y'all can tell you where you can find that you can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal where you can join the international association of conspiranormalists the mystic crew of conspiranormal Uh, i think we're done with the uh, Mardi Gras festivities for this year of the Mystic Crew. All but uh, only the high initiates of that order know about that. And uh, then you can also, if you really want to help us out, uh, you can join the Ancient Circle of Strange Realities. Yeah, stay tuned for an announcement. Uh, We're going to be kicking off our monthly meetups with presentations uh, next month in March. This may be coming out right at the beginning of March, but uh, so stay tuned for that and also stay tuned for any announcements about uh, what we're going to do for Strange Realities Conference. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. And uh, we'll talk to you soon on Conspiracy Normal. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.